This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Well, folks, welcome back to another edition of the Clay Young Show here on Podcast225.com, iTunes, and on the Talk 107.3 mobile app. We have a great show in store for you today. As most of you know, as we drop this show, we are about a week after the announcement by the Justice Department in the Alton Sterling case. Now, for people who are here in Louisiana, you're very clear that this is just the beginning of that process. At the time, that may not have been very clear. But I think everybody now is fairly clear that that's where we are, that last week was just the beginning. I think that the public has not been always given fair perspective on that night and what the process has been since then and what the process is going to be going forward. Now, since then, we've learned a lot, but I think perspective can help to help help add to context. Here's what I mean. If you have an understanding of what is supposed to happen, when something does happen, it gives you clarity on whether what happened was right or wrong based upon what was supposed to happen. The actions of the Justice Department. What exactly is their authority in this? What does it mean to send a case to the Civil Rights Division? How does that impact the burden of proof? What about what can and can't happen to an officer involved in an incident like this? So we'll get into that with Prim Burns, who used to be a prosecutor in the district attorney's office here in East Baton Rouge Parish. She is a brilliant lady with lots of experience and a ton of insight on this. And we will talk with her about it next here on The Clay Young Show. Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. Mark your calendars now for the 2017 Smoke 'em If You Got Them fundraiser taking place on Sunday, May 21st at Ben 77 Bistro in Perkins Row. The event starts at 4 o'clock. It'll feature live music, food, a live and silent auction, and a special guest will be at this year's event as we benefit the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation. Taya Kyle will be in attendance. What a fun way to serve our country to come out and have a good time at the event with the cool name Smoke Em If You Got Them. I'm going to be there. I would love to see you there. Come out, have a good time. Live music, cigars, good food. Sunday, May 21st, 4 p.m., Bin 77 Bistro in Perkins Row. I can't wait to see you there. It's going to be a fun day. Tickets are available online at chriskylefrogfoundation.org or clayyoungent.com. You can also buy them at the door. It's the 2017 Smoke Em If You Got Them fundraiser, Sunday, May 21st. First, presented by Orion Instruments. Welcome back to the Clay Young Show. 
back with Prem Burns, longtime prosecutor in the DA's office, one of Baton Rouge's best people. And she's here before we uh, came on the air to talk about this. We were talking about our gardens and work in the garden. And we have that in common. It's it's a relaxing thing to be outside in the sun working in the garden. And so I, I'm, I'm glad you share that uh, that love of gardening with me. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it's it's quiet time meditation, prayer, whatever you want to do, right? but just enjoying life in general. Well, it's so interesting because I, I don't think we take the moments now because of busy schedules to stop and just breathe and just kind of, okay, be in the moment. Uh, I think it was John Maxwell who said, wherever you are, be there. And it's very good advice, you know? It, it absolutely is. And I think it, all of this mindfulness yeah. type um, talk that we hear, it, it's important. If you're eating a meal, right. enjoy each fork. Absolutely. If you're washing your face, even <laughs> enjoy the warm water yeah. on it, yeah. the sun coming down on you in the garden. So, yes, enjoy everything. Just don't do it quickly, rotely, yeah. because there's no joy in that. And I think we we forget the little things, and then we forget the bigger things. Well, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this. It's funny you say that. I was driving up to Shreveport earlier this week. I had some business up there, and so I drove up on a Sunday afternoon, and I'm on 190, and I get through Livonia and the little towns approaching 49, and it was maybe... 4 35 o'clock and it was gorgeous and at one moment I just said wow what a beautiful day and I just cruised into Caddo Parish just enjoying the beauty of the afternoon it made the it made the the whole experience so much more enjoyable and it went by so much faster it does it does yesterday I was doing kind of the same thing I was just out watering some new sod which I had to do but at some point just just stopped looked at a crepe myrtle that I had out there, the birds that were making nests yeah, in it yeah. and enjoying the water. And it was like, isn't this wonderful? Yeah. It's quiet. It's yeah. beautiful. It's wonderful. And I guess the, 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 the point to what we're saying is in, in really enjoy life uh, while you get to live it, right? Absol- absolutely. Yes. You left, you were saying before, when did you leave the district attorney's office? I left as Hiller became, became went into his second term. That was January the 12th of uh, 2014 and I left full-time as mm-hmm. the first assistant mm-hmm. um, at that on that date but continued as a special prosecutor because I went to the Supreme Court a few months later the right. United States Supreme Court to argue the um, Kevin Brumfield Betty Smothers That's case right. and continued to handle that case which after we argued it mm-hmm. was remanded back to the Fifth Circuit I argued that at the end of uh, 2014 had a hearing in 15 on uh, another death penalty case that had Mm -hmm. been going on for 23 years. So I finished that for Hiller and officially ended those duties last August. And for those of you who may not be aware, because either you're new here or you're listening to the podcast some in, in some other place, Betty Smothers was a Baton Rouge police officer who was assassinated in January of 1989. 1993. Uh, excuse me, 1993, 1993. And her son has become one of the more iconic sports figures in Louisiana history. Warwick Dunn, who played in the NFL for a couple of teams and has really become even more known because of what he has done 
for communities here, communities in Baton Rouge and uh, in, in the Tampa area as well, in Atlanta, uh, a program where he bought homes for single mothers and really provided a foundational start, not just for these mothers, but for the children that they were caring for, correct? Absolutely. Warwick was was the eldest yeah. of six children, yeah. and Betty uh, was raising six children by herself, right. just exemplary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, On a police officer's salary. Yes, and yeah. working extra duty, right. and coaching, right. and being a wonderful, exemplary mom to her kids. Mm-hmm. And the desire always was to give her own children a home, and mm-hmm. she understood the importance of home, of parenting, and that was that was instilled in each of the children, but particularly Warwick as the eldest. At she and of course he was had just turned eighteen at the time that she was taken away from from her family. Mm-hmm. But he understood the importance of that, and to memorialize her, he has done this for other single mothers with their children, hoping that they will also have a chance at life. He's just become. And is a phenomenal man. And he had to become a man, even though he was 18, had just turned 18 when this happened, he had to assume the duties of manhood long before one is expected to. I mean, becoming 18 in the eyes of many makes you an adult, but there are certain responsibilities of being an adult that you're really not ready for at 18 years old. He, he did. He had many responsibilities yeah. before that because Betty, That's right. Betty would pair the children up, six children, uh, one to one, an right. older one with a younger one. Right. But he absolutely, the minute he was told that his mom was, was dead, he, he was the patriarch of that family. Right. And continued, continued to uh, assume that role. And honest to goodness, has never changed in, in all of the years that I've known him, tw- over 23 years. He has not changed one bit in becoming wealthy. Yeah. In becoming famous. Sure. Um, his heart was always in the right place. He yes. was raised correctly, mm-hmm. and he has passed that on and has not let any of this affect him in any manner. It's amazing to me. You know, at, at, at a later date, I, I'd love you back to talk up specifically about that because that was one of those, there had been years that had gone by since an officer in Baton Rouge had been assassinated, and then in the almost 20 years after that, it has become something that that we're seeing more often than we'd uh, than we'd like, um, Prim is here to talk about the Alton Sterling case, everything that went on with it, and to lend perspective to that night in July of last year, the early morning hours of July fifth of twenty sixteen. So the timeline, as we know it, that has been fairly consistently given. Uh, is that there was an anonymous call into PD that there was a man outside of a convenience store in North Baton Rouge who had allegedly pulled a gun on someone there. Two police officers uh, end up there. Officer Lake was first, and then Officer Salamone. They engage Alton Sterling, and then that engagement led to a physical altercation that resulted in Sterling being shot six times. From there, lots of things happened. The district attorney, less than 12 hours after this incident took place, made the decision to kick this case up to the Department of Justice. Uh, We then hear from the Department of Justice that this is going to be sent to their civil rights division. 
And in that time and in the days since then, many other things have happened, most notably the assassination of three police officers on July 17th, 12 days after this event had taken place. And subsequently, we have had a lot of opinions about that. Would you agree with that timeline as I have given it? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It was a fairly tight timeline, mm-hmm. but with events that we will never forget because right. what you're talking about we're, and, and our flood after that, um, it, it was just, uh, just a scenario that I don't think anybody will ever forget. Let's go back to that night. And Corey Amundsen went through the details of what happened in those first hours of 5th July last year. And as he explained what happened, he talked about the interaction, namely between Officer Salamone and Alton Sterling after uh, Officer Lake had engaged Mr. Sterling. What was your opinion of Amundsen's timeline as he gave it last week? We learned more details. There, there were many things that I had not been aware of. I had seen, of course, I think the, the main the shooting, what mm-hmm. I would call the final shooting yeah. uh, video, but there was also at some point released an earlier approach uh, that I particularly remember of Mr. Sterling being thrown across the hood of a car yeah. as well. There was a little snippet of that mm-hmm. and a little bit of the 911 call, although I learned more in the 911 call that there was also the additional comment that he, uh, he had had the gun but now it was in his pocket. Yeah. That was important to me to hear that, but there were additional details, and of course there, were, there was transcript that was provided to the family, so they, they heard video as sure. well, um, that the gun was initially pulled by the officer. Yeah, that, that, that uh, or, or pulled by the officer. I'm sorry, I, I jumped ahead of where you were going. Please continue. It's apparently Salamone approached him with the gun drawn, which we had not heard before, uh, it was put up to his head early in in the transaction mm-hmm. between the three individuals, I will say. Um, I had been under the impression or, or had not known that anything was pulled by any of the officers right. until the, what appeared to be the final shooting. So that, that was a huge, to me, was, was a huge piece of information. Um, statements that were allegedly made by the officer. Yes. Because, because I, was, I was concerned about how the approach was made. How, how did these two officers initially approach Mr. Sterling? Mm-hmm. What, was, what was the, did they initially talk to the 911 caller? Because I was concerned whether that person was still at the scene. Right. And when they got there, did they first approach that person and say, who, who is the person here? Is he still here? Yeah. Has he, uh, does he have the gun out still? Tell me what happened. So we still don't know whether the officers engaged the 911 caller, yeah. whether he was still there or not, what information was told. But we did learn from that uh, further uh, dialogue in the 911 call that the gun appeared to be back in Mr. Sterling's pocket, yeah. which, which I found to be a very important fact. Um, we, we then learned that there was tasing involved. So before we go, I, I want to take this a section at a time. And starting with the the interaction well let's go back to the call i have i have and you know how it is hearing that some have said that the gun and the advocate uh, had a story this past weekend saying that 
Mr. Sterling did not pull the gun, that when he engaged the anonymous person who would call 911, that he he was just patting his pocket, alluding to the fact that he had a gun. I've also heard that, yes, there is on video that he did pull the gun and that he did point the gun at someone. We don't know. Did, did Amundsen clear up which one of those scenarios was true or do we still not know yet? We, we still do not know because we have not seen the video. any further video okay. and we have not heard um, whether this person was interviewed, right. whether the person said touching it, okay. uh, said there was a gun there mm-hmm. or I might pull one on you. Right. That is absolutely unclear. So, and, and I want to, and we talked about this in the beginning, giving perspective. So I want everyone to remember that, that that distinction has not been clearly made. It wasn't clearly made by the interim uh, U.S. attorney. And, and we haven't seen video yet. Once the video is released, and I'll get, and later down the line, I want to talk about that moment at, at which the video is released. Then we know that the officers are called to the scene because of this accusation, whether unclear about how the gun was used, but that there was a man with the gun at a convenience store. Officer Lake gets there first. Yes. And then Officer Salamone. Now, in some of what I have read, it is that Officer Salamone and, excuse me, Officer Lake and Mr. Sterling uh, do have a conversation, but I have not seen anything that said that Officer Lake was having any success with engaging Mr. Sterling or that they were talking, but it, and it hadn't risen to the level of yelling or anything yet. Absolutely correct. And from what I understand as well, there, there was not a clear understanding made or understood, either made by the officers or understood by Mr. Sterling right. as to why the officers were there approaching him. Right, right. What, what I came away from the press conference um, understanding was that he kept questioning why, why are, why, and, or the family, um, after listening to that video, yeah. is like, why, why are you here? You know, I don't understand what's going on. There appeared to be what, what we lawyers would call not a meeting of the minds. Right. In other words, it was not made clear by the officers or appreciated in Mr. Sterling's mind as to what was going on, why he was approached. And we don't know how quickly he was approached by these officers. We do not know what language was used. We do not know at that point. Uh, I think it was pretty clear uh, that at no point did he have a gun drawn because there's no information that was furnished that the officers... Well, no one has said, yeah, at the, at the initial point of engagement that they saw a gun. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The most we have heard is that he he's going forward or he's got it at the very, very end. But this is after there's this is during the scuffle that's taking place only moments before shots are fired. Absolutely. So there's so there's nothing like put the gun down. Okay. The gun is out in his hand, which which in many encounters, as you well know, we see and we see on videotape that somebody has already drawn a gun. They right. have it at their side. Right. Or they're moving with their hand and the officer is finally saying Put it down. Put it down. Drop it. And that's when the shots are fired. That is not the situation here, according to the information we received at the press conference. So then Officer Salamone gets there, sees that there is no there is not compliance. Now, we have heard speculation about at what point he starts to speak. Some have speculated that he jumped out of the car, gun drawn, screaming expletives at Mr. Sterling about him complying. Others have said that you know he gets there kind of observes what's happening for a moment and then he starts to uh, yell at Mr. Sterling in a tactic to get him to comply to get him to listen that distinction 
is a huge one in terms of context, correct? It is to me. That, that was one of the first questions I had was how was this approach made? Mm-hmm. Do, do you get out and identify yourself, say, why are you, you know, yeah. wh- this is why I'm here. Right. Are you armed? Right. You know, what are you doing? Right. What is the tone that is used? Right. As you well know, the way we approach another individual, whether in our voice. Oh, sure. Uh, screaming, mm-hmm. calm, uh, whether we are making quick movements. Right or doing it in, in what we would call a normal professional manner right. makes so much of a difference. Was was anybody's hand out? Was anybody mm-hmm. grabbing and touching? Right. Because human beings, I don't care what you're doing, whether you are uh, breaking the law possibly or not, if somebody engages you and grabs you right away or roughs you up or talks very roughly to you, mm-hmm. you are going to react instinctively right. as a person. In a defensive in a de- way. Absolutely. So, and again, that that piece of information is not clearly known at this point. And, you know, I want to avoid playing the speculation game that lots of people, I mean, some of this does beg a little bit of speculation and no one's perfect, but I don't want to be, I don't want to engage in overt speculation. And so I ask the question about the approach because, Sometimes cases like this can have an impact on officers after the fact. Talk about protocol. The Advocate article this weekend does, because there are two trains of thought here. One from people more sympathetic to Mr. Sterling's side say that, hey, you jump out of a car pointing a gun at a guy and you're screaming cuss words at him. Who's going to react to that without being defensive or agitated? There's another, there's another line of thought that says it is a tactic by an officer to force compliance verbally so as not to have it end up in a physical uh, confrontation. What's your perspective on, on those trains of thought? My, my perspective is, is it's better to try to de-escalate a situation, to engage it in a more professional way, unless you've received information that he's out there punching the, uh, the first arriving officer I, I just think it's preferable to say, you know, let, buddy, what's going on? You know, and do it more calmly and not not pull out a weapon. What is the point? Because they always say to an officer, you know, don't pull it out or, 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 or just a citizen, don't pull out a weapon unless you plan to use it. Right. And certainly the pulling out to me as, as a prosecutor and as a citizen, if you pull out a weapon, you have already raise the level of encounter between two people then what what arises in my mind is what what is the response of the individual is there fear and and, and we only know this from the individuals who are out there mm-hmm. is there fear at a gun being pulled if it was pulled um is there initial resistance or is there wh- why is this happening what is the level of of understanding that the that the person you're approaching appears to have. Mm-hmm. When I went away from from the family speaking, there appeared to be this cloud of I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand. So what what becomes important to me is the sub, the subjectivity also, mm-hmm. not just of the officer but of of Sterling, mm-hmm. because if I don't know his intellectual level, right. I don't know whether he was on any kind of medication, if there was any mental health history. That is huge because we've also seen this in in some of the sure. killings where somebody appears to be totally confused, or there's mm-hmm. a, a bystander in the background saying, "Wait a minute, he's slower. He doesn't understand. Sure. He's having problems." 
problems. So there, there appeared to be never this, this uh, we're on the same page. Do we know for certain that Salamone did draw his weapon before encountering Mr. Sterling? And I ask because I, I, have, I have heard that, but I don't know that it was expressly stated by Corey Amundsen, and maybe he did and I missed it. Do we know as a point of fact that he did draw his service weapon at some point early on in the confrontation or in the in the alter verbal altercation before it became physical. We do not know that. What, what the, the first that I heard of the gun was obviously from the family, where they said the gun was put up to the head at some point. But it appeared that there was either the beginning of a struggle or a slight struggle going now, on at that. Because, so we do not know. So because I have seen that at some point he holsters his weapon. Which, or I've read that, and if that is the case, then obviously that means that it was out of its holster, but at what point was it out of the holster? We, we're not clear on when that was. We're not, and that's huge, because it, it, that was the first time that I had ever heard that the gun was removed, but I presumed it was only taken out just, but you know, right before the shots were finally yeah. fired that ended Mr. Sterling's life. Mm-hmm. This was huge to me, that the gun had been taken out once before, that it had been reholstered, um, and that there was still this, this huge scuffling going on. Yeah, yeah. Because, because in the little bit of the video that I saw where Sterling was being taken over the hood of the car, uh, there, there was no gun out or anything. Right. There was, there was right. just this, this huge physical encounter. Right. Then at that point, he goes to the ground, and you could not see that much, obviously, because right. of the position of his body, yeah. the, the size of all the sure, men that sure. were involved. That's here. right. And because there is a point where you do see him pull out the gun when he is telling him to to stop moving or comply or, or what have you. But we don't know. And you're right that I did remember that video, which which does. That's the truth. Where he, he doesn't have the gun out when the scuffle is happening on the hood of the car. So now let's go backwards again before we go forward. From the perspective of police officers and a high stakes, high intensity moment like that, where we have learned that this entire thing took place in less than two minutes. Some some in law enforcement believe that this second guessing without fact is dangerous because of the precedent it sets for officers who are in heated, you know, a moment's situation that happens and may cause hesitation that could result in someone losing their life, whether it be the officer or someone else. So there is some sensitivity to some of this speculation without knowledge. I'd like you to speak to that. And then I'd like you to also speak to what, in your opinion, as a prosecutor, was appropriate and not appropriate based upon what we know, not what we are still yet to find out. Absolutely. We, we know in one particular situation where a female officer recently, and I say recently, mm-hmm. meaning within the last six months, sure. um, was in an encounter, and she was taking a pretty hefty beating until a fellow officer came up right. and was able to subdue the, uh, the would-be arrestee, mm-hmm. and he asked her, why didn't you draw your gun? And she said, I just... You know, I'm not doing it. There's just too much public scrutiny. Right. So that's a situation by not defending yourself because of fear of possibly shooting somebody or being prosecuted mm-hmm. or or having the community 
rise up that somebody may lose their life so right. so it's it's a very it's a very hard situation and the way the way the federal law was too the fe- the federal law is very clear that you have to judge the situation by what is in that subjective mind at the time mm-hmm. of the incident from that officer's perspective. In right. other words, Monday morning quarterbacking, what they call the 2020 hindsight, mm-hmm. you cannot use. And, and and if somebody, if you or I say after watching all of this, you know, Clay, you and I would not have done the same thing. Right. That is not the federal standard. Right. Now, it may be the state standard. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the difference here that we're dealing with. But you cannot go back, and they will say that, is that you are not there, your, your blood is not pumping, you are not seeing all of the things mm-hmm. and feeling all of those things that we may see two days later on a video. So you have got to go with the officer's gut. So I think what, what becomes important is what was the officer's or officer's state of mind when, when they got to the scene, something I would always want to know is what were they doing immediately before? What kind of okay. call were they on okay. immediately before? Had they had any kind of waking up on the wrong side sure. of the bed? That that's, that speaks uh, to the state of mind. It does to all of us. How yeah. we go about our day right. is did did we almost Absolutely. have a traffic accident Absolutely. before we got to work? Absolutely. Does that put us in a bad mood dealing with? Uh, did somebody call us in? Did, did I have a prior encounter with somebody in the street that did not go well at all? Mm-hmm. So these these are things. What is your state of mind as you approach uh, Mr. Sterling? Okay. Um, what Do you know anything about him? What, right. did, what did your fellow officer say to you, if anything? Right. Did you talk to the 911 caller if he was still there and ask, uh, how, how intense was this? You know, was the gun actually pulled on you? Did you see it? Mm-hmm. Did he say something to you? Uh, what was his tone of voice? Did he appear to be acting strange? Did he appear to be acting sick? Was was there time to even do this? Was the person there or not? And uh, what I would want to know is, did, did also, did the person appear to be, when I got there as an officer, is he acting right? Right. Or does does he seem to be intoxicated? Yeah. Does he seem to be under the influence of something? Does there seem to be something else going on in his mind? Mm-hmm. Is he a little slower in receiving these instructions and understanding them and possibly being that there might be uh, a mental health problem or possibly uh, an intellectual uh, deficit that may be going on here? But does something seem strange to me as well? Or do I, do I just come up on it and start acting uh, rather than reacting right. and, and trying to take in a little of the scenario. Do we have anything to lend context to whether or not what you were just describing took place? <clears throat> because all I've heard is speculation, but I've not heard anything factual based upon video or or the beforehand timeline that would lend truth to whether or not these these protocols were all triggered and exercised. Have we seen anything to we, give context? We, we have not seen anything, and that's what's so vital. And okay. and that that is why speculation is so bad. Yeah. It is so Especially bad. now. Absolutely yeah. now. What we want, yeah. what we want as a community, what we want as a prosecutor that may be handling this, yes. what we want as a grand juror that may be ultimately presented with all of this evidence mm-hmm. is the evidence. We want to know step by step, whether it's one to 50, what took place at, at the things that I've mentioned. Mm-hmm. We want to know what time did you arrive at right. work? What calls did you have prior to this? Right. What, was, what was your last encounter? How quickly did you get there? 
what was the information that was in your mind? Mm -hmm. Did your fellow officer relay any information? What did you first see? Mm -hmm. Was there uh, struggling going on at that point? Was there arguing? Was there the raising of voices? The, the person handling this now needs to understand each and every one of these steps, not as speculation, not as what uh, a bystander may have seen part of, uh, or what's in the media? What's in particularly what's in the media or yeah. snippets of a video? Yes. Snippets of videos do not show the entirety of, mm -hmm. of the the transaction. So it's vital to it's vital for all of us in making a fair assessment of this case and what took place, no matter what the outcome happens to be. So whether, whether it's an indictment and a trial, mm -hmm. whether it's a what they call a no true bill, which right. would be a not indictment right. by a grand jury or basically even a hung grand jury, mm -hmm. which means that grand jury itself cannot decide what we need to. We, we need facts. Right. We need hard right. facts. Right. But, but the public also needs to know the process. That's yes. And and again, it goes back to what we were talking about before well, we went on the air here. It was about the perspective and when people have fact, when they know what was supposed to happen, it does put your thoughts or opinions in context. And then it becomes a discussion about policy and process versus just wild speculation and opinion. Uh, as I said earlier in the open and giving the timeline, within 12 hours of this incident taking place, the district attorney decided to kick this up to the Department of Justice. And then they sent it to their civil rights division. What is your opinion about Hiller deciding to do that? He looks like the smartest guy in the room to a lot of people now because of that and because of what we've seen in the aftermath. And in truth, there were people asking for this to go to the to the feds and not be handled locally. Your opinion on his decision? This this is the only problem that I see with it initially going going to Washington and to the federal government is that I don't know how clearly everyone involved in that decision knew what the legal standards were. Really? This, this is because when, when I first started researching and looking at this case, we know that since 1995, mm -hmm. um, and that is Republican and Democratic sure. administrations right. and different attorneys general, that 95 to 96 percent of the cases that have gone to the uh, civil rights section for criminal review have been not indicted. Mm. So that that is a very hard standard. And the standard is... Because it's so hard to prove that intent based upon racial animus, correct? It, it, tr it truly is, and yeah. that's the bottom line. It's, it's what I would call the gold standard yeah. of uh, yeah. prosecution. And w some people have said that, well, the standard should be changed, but, but I tried to bring out the fact that it was actually the United States Supreme Court in 1945 in a case called Screws versus United States, what is now known as the Screws precedent, mm -hmm. which establishes that standard of willfulness that is so very, it's a high bar. And knowing that most of these cases are not prosecuted because of that very high bar right. and have to come back, what was, I think it was difficult further not explaining to the public, look, if it goes up there, this is the standard that has to be met. Too, so many people that I knew came back and said, we're waiting for the verdict of the trial. We hear that it's going to be a not guilty verdict against, against these officers. And I tried to explain to people, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
This this is simply right. A, this is a decision de- to, to prosecute or not. Absolutely not not at guilty the, or not guilty. Yes, and yeah. at the federal level. Yes, and it's still if they come back and say we are not prosecuting, sure. that does not say that the state in this case it would be the attorney general because right. of the re- recusal. Yeah. can look at another standard which does recognize that officers can make mistakes bad judgments, bad calls, which are either negligence or overreaction, mm-hmm. and they can still be held criminally liable. I think that needed to be explained to the Early on. From day one. Yeah. At the time yeah. of the recusal right. and when the governor held the press conference and yes. said we're, we're turning it over. I felt that the Department of Justice and, and the FBI's assistance was important in the sense that they have better laboratories. Mm-hmm. They have better ability to analyze forensics. Now, sure. and when I say the forensics, I am primarily talking about the videotape, yeah, yeah, uh, the the phone video, the audio mm-hmm. that would be there to enhance that, to make it mm-hmm. clear, mm-hmm. to look at it. Those are tools that the FBI lab has that are excellent. We, yes. We've used those before. So I felt, in that sense. That would be certainly preferable to have an analysis of the the physical evidence yes. done. However, knowing this this very high standard, you could almost presume that they're not they're not going to indict federally. They're going to have to bump it back to the state. So so what I felt was that we kind of put the cart before the horse. Yes. We prolonged the process without explaining to the public. I think honestly, had it been explained, um, of course, people a lot of people felt. Sending it out from from the locals was a better procedure because you can have more confidence sure. when it is out of out of community. But I also think. But the FBI doesn't prosecute murder cases. They 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 do not, and the federal government can in yes. certain cases, yes. but it's very rare incidents. Yes. A Timothy McVeigh yes. kind of situation, which was which was basically an act of terrorism. Absolutely, yeah. or the situation in in Charleston yes. where you're we're talking yes. about the death yes. penalty yes. there. That being available to yes. them, but no, not in this kind of scenario. Yeah. It, it is not the same, and you're not talking about indicting for a crime like manslaughter mm-hmm. or negligent homicide, mm-hmm. which which we do recognize. And and to that point, in, in layman's terms, what you are saying, as I understand it, is by going to the civil rights division without him uttering a racial slur and making a case that he is angry at him or he is after him because he is black without him saying that it's hard to determine what's in the officer's head when the engagement is going on is that fair i think that's absolutely correct i think it's 100 percent correct and and that was my comment is that unless you have some piece of evidence that says oh as these officers approach they're oh that's that son of a gun mm-hmm, again mm-hmm. uh we've had so much trouble with yeah, that yeah. person mm-hmm. before words being mm-hmm, used mm-hmm. derogatory language um where you know it's like oh let, let's let's give him a run for his money right. and show him who's in right. charge that's right and do it precisely for that reason right um it, that's that's almost an impossible scenario that's not to say that it cannot happen sure because we have danziger bridge oh sure we have the yeah. abner Luima case yeah. in, in new york that's where right. where uh, mr Luima was sodomized mm-hmm. by a police officer right. who deliberately right deliberately without any any provocation Absolutely. cause did that mm-hmm. they are so rare to pr- it's a question of proof and and again it, and, and you know we talked about avoiding speculation uh, and i'll just ask the question was that decision 
influenced by the tone and tenor of society at the time and what was being said in the media because I kind of went, hmm, really? When I heard that they were sending it to the Civil Rights Division because I have, I mean, just a, a rudimentary understanding of, of that, obviously not trained in law as you are, and it just seemed like, okay, well, that's going to be hard to prove unless you have some concrete evidence, video, audio, something that proves that, yes, he targeted him, if he targeted him, because he was black. That was my initial gut, is that this is going to go no place very fast, mm-hmm. except it went very slow. Yeah. You're talking about 10 months. Why do you think months. it took so long? That I do not know, because I, I very thoroughly looked at the decision in Ferguson, yeah. which ended up being an 86-page yeah. report, very detailed, and sure. of course, we, we do not know what sure. a, a kind of report we would have had in this case, mm-hmm. but yes, I, I thought it was, was a long period of time. I heard a little speculation, well, there's a change in administration. We did have a change in, in our mayor here. Mm-hmm. That, I do not know to what extent it may yeah, have been Yeah, what role say, would that have even played in this? And and this was this was the Lynch Justice Department that... It was. ...that conducted this entire thing. So, and this is an assumption, and you know what people say about assumptions, but that means that this would have been buttoned up at the end of December yes. of last year, which yes. means we sat on it, the, the Justice Department sat on it for nearly five months or four and a half months so it's just kind of it's it's very surprising uh, about that now now that we have learned that they have decided not to indict there is still a ton to be learned about what happened that night in terms of context it is now going to jeff landry's office the the state attorney general how does that process work the transition of this how, how does that work? And then what happens next? The attorney general stepped up immediately that day because as the press conference was concluding by the federal government, he had already issued a press which was read on the news after mm-hmm. that saying, I am requesting that everything that the government has, in other words, their, their reports, mm-hmm. their forensics, their, that would be their autopsy report, any toxicology that could have been done, all of the evidence be forwarded, sealed, of course, mm-hmm. because this is still an ongoing criminal proceeding, That's which right. prevents, although I know everybody would like to look at things, mm-hmm. they would like to hear things um, for their own edification, yeah. for... Uh, Nosiness, really. <laughs> I, I think a lot of it is at this <laughs> yeah. point, sir. It's curious, yeah. human yeah. curiosity. Right. It cannot be done. No. It, it, you cannot make a public records request, a Freedom of Information right. Act request. It's a pending criminal case still. Right. Um, so this, he has, he, he, he was ready to request all of that and that it be sent over. He had already said that he had appointed a, a special person in his mm-hmm. office. That has he, he named assi- who it was yet? We have not public heard that. Okay. I, I've not publicly heard that, but he said, I have assigned someone and I would presume that there would be more than one person sure. assigned. And he had already said state police will investigate this right. to any further, uh, degree that of course it, it would be needed to, to be investigated. So he got on it immediately. And then the question is, how will he handle it? Will he look at it? Of course, the federal the federal process is not at that point to present it to a grand jury because a group of individuals mm-hmm. reviewed it, made the decision that charges would not be filed. So it was not the decision of a grand jury at, right. at the end of that. Right. So we will have another process here where the attorney general himself could look at it um, if he felt that for example, a manslaughter or negligent homicide. Yeah, he, he will go straight up or down. Was a crime committed? Was yes. this a, was this a killing by virtue of negligence or 
purposeful willful willfulness by Officer Salamone. That's that's what he's going to do here. Is that, that correct? That's basically that's basically what it is. Is yeah. there a violation of the law? Yeah. And of course, it could be presented to a grand jury. They could hear testimony with an allegation of self-defense that sure. this killing was sure. justifiable because right it was because that's the other side of this yes. that and because there are two sides of this and the context again. It's so important because if the officer felt that there was an imminent threat to his life and the life of his partner, then he acted within the boundaries of the law. Absolutely. And and normally, this has been my experience in handling these types of cases, is that if, if and when at the appropriate time of presenting them to the grand jury, when you feel that you have everything you need mm-hmm. to present it to that grand jury of 12 individuals, and that would be here in East Baton Rouge right. Parish, a closed proceeding, of course, but the officers would have the right to testify. Right. They would have the right to have their counsel, in fact, even in the grand jury room as they testify, not to interrupt the proceedings, but if they needed legal advice to step mm-hmm. outside of the room and to give them that legal advice, but um, it would be, it would almost amounts to a mini trial, Clay. Yeah. That's that's huh. what the way I've always done it, is put everybody on in the grand jury, not sugarcoat anything, because mm-hmm. I've had cases where they indict, and I've had cases where they didn't indict. Right. So it's, it's a question to me to put it on fairly, impartially, all of it. So this would be a grand jury that the AG, the state's AG, would would call for. Yeah, this this is the thing. We we have we always have two sitting grand juries in East Baton Rouge okay. Parish. Always two. Okay, they're always Be- because okay. we need that just for the uh, volume of criminal activity in the DA's office. Remembering that any case that requires a life sentence, such as a rape, mm-hmm. a first or second degree murder, certain crimes will always have to be indicted by Constitution. So these are people who are on call to be on grand on a, on a grand jury they they if, or is there a list if, if there is a sitting grand jury okay. we'll have you will usually have the two sitting grand juries those people are either sworn for nine months okay or for a year they okay. can they can be uh six, six to nine months and they can be extended uh okay. is the 12 month grand jury can be extended um the other thing is there is and i changed the law a few years ago, mm-hmm. because we uh, this was when uh, Attorney General Caldwell, yeah, Buddy Caldwell, really needed a grand jury to look at the CNSI matter. Yeah, yeah. So what we did, we went to the legislature. We got the ability to have a third special grand jury and okay. panel, which can sit up to twelve months, and it can be extended a little bit if their investigation is not is not finished. Where did those people come from? What, what it is, it's the same way you or I would get a, a, a summons to come for regular jury duty. Okay. Sa- same process. Okay. Same process. It's it, But once you get there to pick a grand jury, the, it, it's not at all the same way that we pick a trial jury mm-hmm. where you have a defense attorney, a prosecutor in there. It is simply the prosecutor. It's open to the public. Sure. Picking of a grand jury is open to the public. And you pick 12 people pretty much by just pulling up the first 12 names. Mm-hmm. They come, they sit up there. If anybody has a hardship, which means that they could not come, let's say, every week, right. whatever, for a period of time, if they're hard of hearing, you right. know, if they're a convicted felon that yes. has not been pardoned, there are certain restrictions. But basically, it's pretty quick, and it's pretty much like, um, will you lose your job right. if, if you're impaneled, you yeah. know, or if you're you're an basically. hourly worker? Some yeah. people that's usually yeah. the reason people are excused from right. from that because it's it could be a process of six to nine months 
or in this case, it would be a special grand jury. It would be up to 12 months. And if they say, look, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got an elderly mom at home or I've got five kids. There's nobody else to, to take care of my children. They'd be bumped. But other than that, generally, you're on the grand jury. Sure. You're on the grand jury. And you don't go, you don't ask questions about what do you know about this case? Mm -hmm. Is there any reason you could not really do it? Now, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say... If, if somebody gets called up there and they know it's specifically for the the Alton Sterling shooting, yeah. if they have an opinion to go, oh, I, I think these cops ought to go to jail, or I think I think that man deserved to be killed, mm -hmm. you know, and just get up there and blurt this out or something, certainly they're not going to. A judge is not going to accept that kind of person. On on that score, elected officials currently sitting in office, issuing statements one way or the other about this. What's your what's your thought on that? I think other than to say this is the process that we are going to follow. I, I think a real explanation of the process, I think it's better for people to keep out of it. I, I honestly do because if it ends up resulting yes. in an indictment, what you're going to do then is taint a potential jury pool. Which, which can be an issue on appeal or maybe even during the case if you can point to a tainting of uh, of the, of the jury pool. I remember in the OJ case, twenty two years ago, twenty three years ago, uh, the judge that preceded Judge Lance Ito jumped all over the LAPD and the DA's office for releasing that nine one one tape of Nicole Brown Simpson when she was screaming and hysterical and talking about. You know, OJ beating her and the whole thing. And he ended up having to, I think, release uh, a jury that he had at a time at the time or something because of the he just said it was really not. It was not smart to release that to the media and then have the media release that to the public because of it would have been one thing if it had come from someplace else. But to have the DA's office do it was outside of the boundaries of protocol. And I think that's kind of, in context, that's what you're saying here. You don't want anyone who is a representative of government doing anything that could adversely impact this case one way or the other. Fair? Absolutely, because what you're going to end up with is, uh, and, and I would anticipate were there to be an indictment in this case, either side filing for a change of venue if they did not want to try this case in this parish, if they felt it had to go elsewhere. Mm -hmm and send it to New Orleans, send it to Shreveport, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it might happen to be. But you, you're, you're trying your case in the, we don't try our cases in the media. We right. try them in a courtroom for right. fairness on both sides. Now, the other, the other potential is that were there to be an indictment at a certain point, you can get a gag order, either uh, side or the court even on its own. Although right. gag orders are very rare, they are frowned upon yeah. because you expect officials to act within the yeah. boundaries sure. of their ethics and right. what they can and c cannot comment on because a, a DA or attorney general is very much limited mm -hmm. in what he or she can or cannot say. Usually it's, you know, I can comment that an indictment was returned for right. this crime. Right. The next the next date that we're going into court is for this or that or the other. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of times we do talk a little bit more yeah. and the defense will as well, but it, it can get to the point where the, the court may have to gag the case, mm -hmm. gag the parties, um, and just just hopefully try this case, not with speculation, innuendo, 
rumor, right. but we, we try it in a courtroom under oath mm-hmm. with evidence that is filed. Well, because there are, there are real people involved here. There are these officers and their families, and the, there are there is the family of Alton Sterling, and the, these people are still here, and some of the speculation one way or the other by officials, you know, the average John Q. citizen, I mean, you're just never going to stop that. And in the era of social media, I mean, people have lots of opinions, whether they make sense or not. But if you are an elected on either side, I just think it it should beg for caution and restraint, at least until the entire process has played itself out. Final couple of questions here. The let's say the state's AG decides not to prosecute what happens or what could happen then or on the other side, if he decides that he does want to pursue charges, then what? If an indictment, of course, is filed mm-hmm. uh, by himself, uh, which he could file. Sure. He could file it and yes. sign it himself mm-hmm. for manslaughter or for um, negligent homicide if, if it were to be something higher, yeah. which I don't I don't I, I, see. Yeah, right, I, I, right. I don't see it. We saw what happened in Marksville. Mm-hmm. There was an indictment for second degree, which quite often by a prosecutor is a tactical decision. Right. You charge with the highest possible mm-hmm. thing, thinking they'll probably come back with manslaughter right. or something. Um, he could actually file himself on that. Um, could even happen if a grand jury decided uh, uh, that they couldn't make the decision themselves and, and had what we call a pretermit, which is a hung grand mm-hmm. jury. He could still come back and file charges. Not, it's not likely ever if if they said not a true bill, which means they've accepted basically that this was a justifiable homicide, uh, that he would take anything further. At that point, what you would do is the next thing is to to basically set it for trial motions, mm-hmm. and, it, and it would proceed to to a trial of twelve people, presuming it were a manslaughter yes um, uh, uh, indictment in this case. And if there's not, of course, you still have the civil aspect. There is still going to be a civil suit, as yeah. we always have, for money damages, mm-hmm. for wrongful death. It's and for then that suit death. would be against the city. Yes, it would. And possibly naming maybe the police chief and or the mayor in this suit. It, that is possible. And that, or, would, and that wouldn't be, well, that, maybe not. Would it be the mayor? Because she was not currently in office when this took place. Normally, it would be against the city of Baton Rouge okay. and the Baton Rouge Police Department. Yeah. And it could also name those officers individually okay. as well. And that suit would be defended by the parish attorney's office. Okay. This is, this is so interesting. And I think you have been able to give more perspective than I've been able to gain from anyone and the you know, 10 months that this has all taken place. And that was so important to me because I do think the public, I, I think some of the speculation and some of the angst could have been curtailed had perspective been given as to what is reality and what is not, what, what this division can and can't do because otherwise people think you can just do whatever you want. You can just fire the officer. You can't just fire the officer. There are all kinds of civil service protections. And I would say to people, you know, hating a policy, you got to be careful with that because you can hate it when it is protecting, quote unquote, someone you don't like. But what happens if the policy isn't there for someone you do like? Yes. And my, my, that is my criticism is that from the get go, I think in fairness and I think it should be done in, in, in any future case, God forbid that we do have something similar, mm-hmm. explain the process mm-hmm. to the public, right. inform them, educate them, right. because so many times not understanding is what leads to people being very angry yeah. about it not and not realizing 
no, there, there is, this is not the end to something. Right. This may just be the beginning. Right. And there are, there are many ramifications. Mm-hmm. Stuff. Likewise, as you say, there, there's been a lot of, uh, should they be fired? Should they be this? No, so there's civil service. There is the completing of an internal affairs yes. investigation. Yes. There are so many facets to this. And, and, and I saw just from Facebook that some people were saying, Put them back to work. Put them back to work. And and my initial reaction was, well, you was, can't do that. You now. can't do right. it. Right. But besides that, even if they, would you really think they would want to be back to work in this community uh, from a safety? It would be sense? tough. I mean, it would be tough. We we look at Ferguson, and that that officer left. Yeah. That officer left. Yeah. And uh, uh, Darren Wilson. Yes. And it's like, do you really think that people are going to be back wearing a badge again? I it mean, would that's be, that's. It would just be it would be tough here. You know, as this thing goes on, I would love to be able to have you back to talk more about it. And then, like I said, a conversation about uh, that uh, that evening in 1993 that I know that uh, has has come back around again. I mean, there's so many fascinating cases that you have been involved with. You were serving at the time of the Derek Todd Lee situation here, which. I mean, in, in about a 15-year period, we have we had five or six serial killers? We, we for certain, we, we know because we tried uh, Derek Lee mm-hmm. and we tried uh, Sean Vincent Gillis. Gillis yeah. There was, a, there was a, another more recent serial killer mm-hmm. who was tried, and they still have many unsolved killers. I, I, would, I would speculate possibly five operating within that yeah. time period. It's, it's, it's so fascinating to know how the process works, and that's what always fascinates me is learning how the process works because it removes the 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 need to have speculation because you go okay well I know this is what's supposed to happen and then when something that you know is supposed to happen doesn't happen that's when you can have a problem but everything that has happened thus far particularly in the Sterling case has been based upon procedure and the way the process works the justice department's decision one way or the other was not going to be a conclusion it it was not and I, I am so relieved, and I really would like to, to commend the Baton Rouge community. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I will commend the Sterling family from Absolutely. the beginning on yeah. how they asked the public yeah. not to repeat what had been done in so many sure. other communities. Prim, she sat, Sandra Sterling sat in that very chair. In that time since then, I've spoken to law enforcement officials currently on the job, no longer on the job, elected officials, community people. And I, she sat right in that chair, and I asked her, do you think the Baton Rouge Police Department is racist? And I asked that question because of all of the stuff out there and people saying how she felt. And I wanted to put the question to her directly and then give her an opportunity to explain her answer one way or the other. She said no. And so, so I know, I've got it on tape, I know how she felt she was not happy with that day and what went on. And you know what? She has allowed that. And there are people who are on the officer's side who say, you know, officers are pounded on and, you know, they're, 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 they get crucified no matter what they do. People are allowed those opinions as well. But if you are serving in an official capacity, you do not have that luxury. You, you don't. You don't. But, but this community has risen. Absolutely. This. And I, I just was so happy um, last week, when when the Justice Department's decision was announced, that the, the response and I think honestly, I will credit the media sure. at that point. I think they learned a lot. They learned a lot, and for educating. Right. What we tried to do mm-hmm. last week was to educate the mm-hmm. public and say, "Wait a minute! Don't react. Understand there are two roads that could have been taken right. here. 
one has been taken, but we still have another another venue left, another another trail to be traveled, and more more things to learn mm-hmm. which we have not learned yet right. that will be properly learned. So so I, once people understand that, and and just have that appreciation, which again, my, my, if I could go back ten months, I would have gone back ten months. Mm-hmm. And, Try to stand up there and, and say, look, look <laughs> let, let me tell you all, right. let, let me try to educate you about this. Wish that had been done, but I really, I really have got to commend the community for the way it's We reacting. have a good city. We do. <laughs> and we, great people here in this good city. We, we certainly do. And I yeah. think, uh, you know, we're an example for the rest of the country. Absolutely. And the, the most egregious actions in the aftermath of last year were not committed overwhelmingly by people from here exactly i mean the majority of the things that happened obviously the worst day which was the 17th of july that wasn't a person from louisiana let alone baton rouge and lots of the people who were out in the protests causing the biggest stirs weren't people from here no one can have a problem with people going out and protesting regardless of what the issue is it's your constitutional right absolutely but no one has the the wide latitude to damage property or to cause violence. I don't, I think you muddle your message when that's what's going on out there. Absolutely. And, and that's what starts incensing people. That's what starts dividing people. And then they start bringing in other things that have nothing to do with the act that they're talking about. That's right. And people then I think naturally bring in uh, their own individual prejudice yes. uh, or bias yes. at that point, yes. and it just it 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 makes us become more. We're not thinking creatures at that point. We become reacting animals. I think. Yes, I do. Will you come back at some point in the future? Absolutely, <laughs> my been... pleasure. Uh, my absolute <laughs> pleasure. I, I love one of the things I loved so much about being a prosecutor and a trial lawyer was being able to educate a jury yes. about the process yes. and how it really works. Now, how it, not how it is on TV, but how it really is. I loved that so much, and I guess a little bit of that is is teaching and explaining. But that's that's a little part of me too. Well, this has been a master class on the process, and we appreciate you for it. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. Prim Burns, and she will be back. There is so much more to talk about, and because I know she's not very far away, I'll lean on her a little bit. I'll get to see that garden at some point soon. Thank you, Prim. Thank you. This is Jeff LaDuff, retired chief of police for the city of Baton Rouge. I'm Kelly LaDuff, co-owner of Open Eyes Safety Training and Consultant. Open Eyes is focused on providing quality safety solutions that give businesses and employees the skill set needed to recognize and react to dangerous situations. On a daily basis, we hear yet another story of workplace violence or active shooter. Open Eyes offers a unique approach to keeping you and your businesses safe through site analysis, technology recommendations, policy review, and employee training. To set up a consultation for your business, call us today at 225-313-9713 or visit us at our website at openeyesafetytraining.com. We say keep open eyes because 10% of our population cause 90% of our problems. See them before they see you. This is The Clay Young Show on podcast225.com. Special thanks to Prim Burns for being our guest on this week's show. Thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate your support. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show and catch it every time there's a new one. You can also follow me on Facebook 
backslash Clay Young or on Twitter at Clay Young BR. And I hope to see you at this year's Smoke'em if you got them. Sunday, May 21st at Bent 77 Bistro in Perkins Row, presented by Orion Instruments. Taya Kyle is going to be there. Live music, grill station, live and silent auction, cigars by CLE. So much fun to be had. The event again starts at 4 o'clock. Tickets are $100. Ben 77 Bistro in Perkins Row. I hope to see you there. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Clay Young Show here on podcast225.com. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.